Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you are with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is ready. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And at the end of our time today, we'll also note a uh, sad passing in political circles today. But Jim, let's start with our good news. And it's not too often we have the European Union in this category, but the European Union deserves some credit today. It's following on the heels of its former member, the United Kingdom, as well as Australia, in not being happy with China's crackdown on Hong Kong. This is what the Free Beacon says about it, although the Wall Street Journal uh, first reported the story. European Union will sanction China for its imposition of a harsh national security law on Hong Kong. The new sanctions hope to mitigate the strength and reach of Chinese extraterritorial power by limiting the export of surveillance hardware to Hong Kong, technology China could use to extradite Chinese nationals from anywhere in the world under the new national security law. Also following in the footsteps of the United Kingdom, which now offers a pathway to citizenship for Hong Kong refugees, the EU is attempting to provide visas for Hong Kongers. Additional steps to support those fleeing Hong Kong may come at the end of the year. China is rebuffing these new policies, saying it's time for the EU to, quote, stop meddling in Hong Kong affairs and China's internal affairs in any way. So, Jim, the Chinese aren't happy with it. That means it might actually have a little bit of teeth here. So, uh, welcome EU to the party. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, by the way, I noticed that subtle shout out to the finest film of all time. Um, <laughs> look, you're not going to find many countries saying, you know, what China is doing in Hong Kong is terrific. What you have to worry about is the idea of, you know, a, a murmuring tisk tisk. Uh, and that they'll send a sternly worded letter of objection to, to the Chinese consulate or Chinese embassy in their country and have no real consequence whatsoever. Uh, I think we're all reminded of another one of the finest films of all time, Team America World Police, uh, <laughs> where Kim Jong-un, or is it Kim Jong-il? Kim, you know, the, the idea that you know, Hans Bricks, oh no, and the joke that, you know, uh, that the UN would send, if, if they didn't respond to a letter, they would send an even more firmly worded letter. Look, sanctions mean something. Now, whether this is really going to be a, you know, it, it's not by itself going to cripple the second largest economy on earth. Some people might even argue the largest. Um, but it is the sort of thing where it's good to see this. This is the sort of thing where you could easily see a European Union that just doesn't want to have conflicts with anybody throwing Hong Kong under the bus, pretending to not notice it, and, you know, offering, you know, looking at their shoes as something bad is happening. And this, this is, you know, as you mentioned, bad enough for the Chinese to object to it. Ch bad enough for the Chinese to perhaps we will see some pushback in the coming days. So good job, EU. It's not something we say very often. I think you put this in the context of the coronavirus, the treatment of the Uyghurs, and, you know, various other policy aggression in the South China Seas. I think each one of these is making it tougher for... Uh, countries that like to believe that they're on the side of the angels, that they're on the side of democracy and peace and freedom and respect for human rights, that it just gets harder and harder to turn a blind eye to what China is doing because they're starting to pile up like a Dagwood sandwich. So um, that's, you know, it's a good sign. Uh, we don't want to overstate it. Don't want to, you know, act like this is going to bring China to its knees and force them to change their behavior in Hong Kong. But it's nice to see the world starting to say, no, if you do this, there are going to be some consequences. 
Boy, Jim, did you unintentionally perfectly encapsulate the NBA, keeping their mouth shut and looking at their <laughs> shoes when it comes to China. Wow. Uh, that's a whole other story we might get to uh, tomorrow or some other time in the three martini lunch. But uh, check out ESPN and what China was doing at NBA academies and the NBA not talking about it. All right. Let's talk about uh, our bad martini now. And this is multi-layered. Uh, we might, Jim, might finally have a winner in the New York congressional primary that was held on June 23rd, which by my calendar, even in the coronavirus era, is over a month ago. Uh, Carolyn Maloney, first elected in 1992, appears to have survived uh, in her race against an upstart challenger named Siraj Patel. He had been ahead for a while, but then the absentee ballots came in, the mail-in ballots, and she is now ahead by about 37 hundred votes, but both campaigns admit that up to 20% of absentee ballots have been discarded by the city board of elections over missing or late postmarks in compliance with state law. And, you know, the law is the law. But Jim, if this fiasco played out in one congressional district and it took a month and longer to resolve because Patel is going to go to court now, so this could go on quite a bit longer. Imagine this playing out all over the country, potentially, with people contesting whether or not these mail-in ballots were postmarked on time, whether the signatures matched, and on and on and on. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there was a TV report that the RNC is uh, showing uh, about how a local TV station uh, went around and mailed in a bunch of pretend mail-in ballots to a P.O. box that it set up to see how well the Postal Service could handle it. Uh, after four days, 21% of the ballots had not been returned, and even those more than a week uh, mailed in advance, 3% uh, were still not there. And 3% uh, is not good when, that's when we're talking about elections. But we're not done yet. Donald Trump sees this, of course, and tweets out this morning with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote Question mark, question mark, question mark. Well, the election date, of course, is set by federal law, Jim. Uh, there's no way Congress is going to change that. So we do have legitimate concerns here. And now you have both presidential campaigns essentially saying if they lose, it's because the other side cheated, which they've both said before. But no matter what happens now, we're going to have one side that is going to be thoroughly convinced they got robbed. Yeah, this is bad, and for for a bunch of reasons. But a big one is that it, it it's it's conflating two, you know, a bunch of different issues. I think there's reason to be concerned, and maybe even really concerned about vote by mail. Uh, I, I think it's very safe to say that you know certain states like Washington, Colorado, I think Oregon, they've been doing it for a long time, so they're used to it. They they get used to sending out ballots to everybody well ahead of time. Everybody knows the deadlines. Uh, I think when I was in in Oregon a couple of years back, they had. Uh, kind of like almost, almost like dumpsters, but you know, like these, these special places where, you know, in addition to the mailbox, just put your ballot in this box, no postage necessary. This is a way to make sure it gets counted. Trying to implement any new change to the voting process is, is always going to have its own share of headaches. The idea of doing it a really sweeping change and trying to get lots of people voting by mail with very little warning, you know, that's going to have its own share of headaches. Um, and as we've seen so far in the places that have had vote by, you know, primaries that occurred after the pandemic hit, where lots of people tried to vote, um, uh, vote by mail who had not before, the counting of the votes went late. And then the question is, do they have to arrive by election day? Do they have to be postmarked by election day? 
You know, what happens if it gets lost in the mail? You know, there's just a whole bunch of headaches that happen with the process of voting by mail. It's not that these, you know, obstacles and problems and headaches are utterly uh, insurmountable. It's just that usually it's good to have experience with them. And the idea is that if this, you know, ends up pushing for a lot of people trying to vote by mail this year, you're going to have election officials who have never dealt with this thing before. By the way, it's also kind of worth noting that when they held that primary in Wisconsin and a whole bunch of folks believe, I guess this was probably like mid to late April, a lot of people thought, oh my goodness, this is a disaster. You're going to have this huge outbreak in Wisconsin. And the numbers of new cases after Wisconsin, in Wisconsin were pretty, were pretty mild, pretty low. There was a, one study that put 68 new cases they could trace to it. Now, that's not good, uh, but it's not, you know, it's, <laughs> there are a bunch of states where 68 cases seems like really a drop in the bucket these days. So um, voting in person may not be this terrible thing. It's an old question to me, you know, are, you, are you socially distancing? Are you wearing a mask? Are you washing your hands? All the basic, you know, virus prevention steps we're supposed to be taking, are you doing them in this process? Um, so the short version is, could you do it? Yeah. Is it, you know, reasonable to worry about whether its process is going to run smoothly? No. And how does the country respond? You know, the 2000 election was challenging enough and that was just one state. What happens if you have five states where they can't say who won on election night? And oh, by the way, you know, you're not going to have this issue in California or Wyoming or something like that. You're going to have this issue in the races that are competitive, the races that are close, the race where, you know, both campaigns have dumped a lot of resources and put a lot of time in. So that's probably that upper Midwest and Florida and maybe North Carolina. You know. um, so the idea of an election night where none of the swing states are decided, um, that's, that's, you know, uh, challenge number one. Then the idea, based on this experience of these primaries, a bunch of these states are taking a really long time to, co to tabulate all these votes. Uh, that is all very, very bad. All of that having been said, no, the president does not have the authority to delay uh, uh, election day. We held an election during the Civil War. We held elections during all of our wars, during the Great Depression, during every challenge this country has faced. We've held elections. So the idea that, oh, no, we can't have an election is a bad idea. An incumbent president is not supposed to have this idea. I really like it if the president could familiarize himself with this document that is at the National Archives that lays out what the president can and can't do. It's, it's right there. It's very clear. I know it's on parchment and the handwriting is tough to read, but there are lots of people who've read through it and put it, and you could adjust the font size any way you like if you want to read it online. I'm referring, of course, to the U.S. Constitution. I got to tell you, folks, you know, Nicholas Cage did not steal this one. That was the Declaration of Independence, and they're not the same thing. Um, this is, you know, the president just tweeting out the first thing that pops into his head. I, I've heard some people speculate that this is intended as a distraction from the, uh, you know, lousy economic numbers that came out today. You know, surprise, surprise, second uh, quarter was terrible, 9.5%. Uh, uh, decline. You know, that's that's what happens when you shut up, shut down a lot of the economy to deal with the pandemic. I, I don't know if that was the president's intention. I don't really care if that's the president's intention. The president of the United States should not be running around saying, hey, we should delay the election, particularly, Greg, if his message is, I alone can restore us to normalcy, saying, hey, I'm the guy who get us back on track, but oh my God, this situation's so bad, we can't even have the election, is stepping on your message in a fairly serious way. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And when I was a little kid, uh, before my dad refurbished the basement, I had a concrete floor and, and all that sort of thing. And I played basketball down in the basement. And I like to uh, imagine that I was different players. And when I was uh, pretending I was doing Laker games, I'd run into the, the workbench area, grab my dad's protective goggles and pretend I was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Well, 
apparently Dr. Fauci thinks that if you've got those goggles lying around, you should be wearing those things now. New York Post, Dr. Anthony Fauci suggested that people wear goggles or face shields as an added measure of protection against contracting the coronavirus. Quote, if you have goggles or an eye shield, you should use it, Fauci told ABC News chief medical correspondent Dr. Jennifer Ashton on Wednesday. When asked if eye protection will become a formal recommendation at some point, he said, quote, it might if you really want perfect protection of the mucosal surfaces. Fauci explained the rationale for the measure, saying, quote, you have mucosa in the nose, mucosa in the mouth, but you also have mucosa in the eyes. Theoretically, you should protect all the mucosal surfaces. So if you have goggles or an eye shield, you should use it. Uh, he added that while goggles and eye or face shields are not universally recommended at this time, if you really want to be complete, you should probably use it if you can. Uh, Jim, I mean, we, we heard from the start that you shouldn't touch your face during this time. Uh, eyes, nose, and mouth, that's how you can uh, make yourself sick, certainly. But at the same time, A, why have we never heard about this before? And secondly, sometimes I think with some of these recommendations, I, I just feel like he's trying to see how much he can get away with with a straight face. Yeah, you know, look, if genuine, if there's a genuine worry that, that you can catch this through your eyeballs, and that if you, you know, you can have the mask, you can have the gloves, you can be, you know, fully suited up, but your eyes are exposed and making eye contact can be a way to spread the, you know, like or getting, you know, having exposed eyes in front of around other people, you know, boy, first of all, this is information that would have been useful to have earlier. And I honestly think this, this will make a lot of people say the hell with this. This is ridiculous. I'm just going to take my chances. I know, you know, that's probably not what Fauci's trying to, to make happen, but that's, you know. People do not like messages like this. Um, now, the interesting thing is I remember there was some doctor who said he got onto a plane. He said he was wearing a full mask. He said he was wearing, you know, and the only thing that wasn't covered was his eyes. And then he ended up catching it. So his theory was he was catching it through his eyeball. Um, and I remember a bunch of people kind of poo-pooing this idea and kind of saying, nah, that's not very likely or something. Look, in the last couple of weeks, people have been asking themselves, is this virus airborne? And there's kind of, couple different ways of looking at that term, like we kind of picture it floating through the air. The virus travels in, in little droplets of mucus or fluid, and you know they, because they can be really, really tiny, like much tinier than the diameter of a human hair. They're so light that, you know, are they floating? They're not, it's not, they have no weight, but they can float a really long time on air currents, perhaps, particularly things like air conditioning. If that is the case, the message would pretty much be, you know, never mind goggles, just avoid contact with other people. Uh, and that is, you know, the sort of things you see in these, you know, uh, sci-fi apocalyptic scenarios where people are afraid to go outside and things like that. I don't think it's at that state. You know, Fauci's a smart guy. I kind of wish he would talk with precision. And this sort of thing really kind of makes people think, oh my God, you know, you think, because he has like, if you think Americans are being reluctant and uh, are being frustrating in their reluctance to wear masks, Imagine the moment you say to everybody, you've all got to look like Eric Dickerson in the 1980s. I was just about to use that analogy. That's funny to <laughs> that up. But yeah. yeah. Or Greg Luganis or, or, you know, who, who else is famous for wearing goggles? Jabbar, Worthy, uh, back in the day, some of those basketball players who don't like to get elbowed in the eye. But yeah, what, I mean, we got this new stimulus bill. Is it going to be PPP for everyone? Hazmat suits? Uh, we got to look like the, the, the government people at ET who came into the house? I mean, what's, what's going to be the end story here? I mean, this is getting on the border of ridiculous. Yeah. Fact, and, I think we're already you know, there. One of those things where if they just come out and say, you know what, we're still learning about this virus and we don't know. Okay. Okay. You're scientists. You're the best in the world. We were, we, you know, but if you admit you're not entirely sure, fine. 
Um, let's try to avoid anything where you say, oh, you know, because here, here's the thing. So at some point they could say, yeah, yeah, this thing is airborne. It's getting into people's systems through their eyes and you really should wear goggles. There will be people who will say, yeah, but back in June, you said we didn't have to wear the goggles. And, you know, that's, that's we'll end up with that sort of uh, uh, response anyway. And again, I just, getting people to wear masks has been challenging enough. I just don't see a situation where we're, you know, until we're just going to go out in the, you know, like maybe, you know, we need to encourage, Greg? What? Cosplay. <laughs> Just have everybody as full Spider-Mans or, or you, know, you know, don't do Batman because one, it covers your nose. It doesn't cover your nose and mouth. And two, he hangs around bats and that's how we got into this problem in the first place. <laughs> um, but, you know, just the idea of, you know what, fine. You know, it's Halloween for the next six months. Everybody go out in full costume as long as it's covering your whole head. Good luck. We won't recognize anybody. And, and you know, it's, you know, Comic-Con got out in San Diego, got canceled. We're going to have it all across the country from now until the end of the year. We're going to be all encouraged to have our own private bubble inside our own house by the end of the fall, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh. we, we unfortunately have a, a sad reminder, Jim, that uh, the coronavirus is certainly not nothing. Uh, we have the news that Herman Cain has passed away. Herman Cain, of course, ran for president in 2012. He was famous for his 999 tax reform proposal. He wanted to abolish the present code and go with a 9% income business and national sales tax. Uh, for a very brief time, he was at the top of the, the polls, but by the time the actual voting started, uh, he was pretty far back in the pack. Uh, but he's a phenomenal success story on the business side, uh, turning Godfather's Pizza around from basically on the brink of extinction to a very successful franchise. A very engaging guy, a nice guy, whether or not you thought he was ready to be president or not. He was an ally of President Trump. He was at the Tulsa rally, and so some folks think that's where he picked up the COVID, and uh, he was battling it pretty much ever since. So whether it started there or somewhere else, we don't really know for sure. But at the age of 74, Jim, Herman Cain, uh, unfortunately, has passed away. Yeah, as I say, I believe his, his first kind of debut in the world of politics goes all the way back to 93, 94, when Hillary Clinton is trying to put together the health care plan. And I think he was on, I want to say it was a town hall meeting. I think it was Nightline or something like that. And he was, you know, Herman Cain, who had built Godfather's Pizza, was this guy who was like, you know, what you're talking about is going to impose massive costs on my company. It might even put me out of business. And, you know, this was not something that the Clinton administration was expecting or was prepared for. Here was this distinguished, you know, accomplished African-American success story saying, hey, Democratic administration, what you're proposing is not going to help me. It's going to hurt me. And it's not surprising that Georgia Republicans looked at that and said, hmm, this guy could, be a, uh, could be, potentially be a compelling uh, candidate. Never quite came together for him. Um, I think there were people who uh, thought his presidential campaign was kind of ridiculous and that he was underprepared because, you know, uh, you know, Greg, what are the odds of some of the Americans ever electing a business executive who's never, never been in elected office before? Uh, low, very low. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, McCain, we, you know, and, and of course the 999 plan and this kind of group, the, the weird uh, campaign ad that featured his campaign manager smoking. And, and you know, this was an utterly bizarre campaign. But there was, you know, you could look at that, you could still like Herman Cain. You still look at this guy and see as a guy who had a little bit of a sense of humor to him, um, who had accomplished things in business and wanted to preserve that entrepreneurial uh, path to success for everybody else. And, uh, you know, it's, 
Uh, it is really sad to see him go before his time. He was getting up there in years, but this this did not need to happen. Don't know if it happened at the Trump rally. He could have caught it, any you know, in a couple of different places. But uh, um, just one more casualty of a pandemic that is probably going to have far too many before all is said and done, Greg. Very sad. Condolences to his family. Jim, on that note, we'll take leave for today. I'll see you on Friday. See you Friday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Also, remember you can get us on those home devices. And please join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.